All right, so we're going to finish Titus today. This might come as a surprise, but we're going to go from verses 4 all the way through 15. I know it's a lot. Bear with me, and we will get through it all. Um, last week, we discussed the first three verses in Titus chapter 3. Starts with a subject that most would love to debate, this idea of being subject to rulers. And that's a big thing right now. If you follow anybody in the socials out there, this whole idea of like Christian nationalism and the ideas of, uh, you know, people who are really independent thinkers that are, <clears throat> you know, trying to make themselves bigger than God. We need to be very careful with that. Like we, God still put the rulers in place. We are still called to be subject to them. Like not in a, you know, just follow the leader way where we're doing things we're not supposed to do, but in a very realistic way that we need to remember that God is sovereign and in control of things. And when we are rebellious towards everything, that's what we look like is rebellious. And therefore, we do not attract people to Christ when we're just rebellious, right? There's a time to reject rulers. And it's not just because you disagree with them or because social media says that they're doing things that who even knows that they're doing them. So just be very careful with that. And as believers, we're called to be law-abiding citizens. We're called to be peaceable citizens, right? Um, it doesn't mean we just willingly follow a government that's going and doing things that are bad. But, um, but we still must follow God first and not deny God first. That is our, our goal. Uh, but what Paul leads us to here is that uh, we used to be rebellious at one point in our life. And that's where when we live in a government that even if we disagree with a lot of what they do is, we, you know, when you were a sinner, you were just rebellious. And I don't know if you can see this out in the world today, but those people who aren't believers, that's all they do is tangle with each other in the world. They tangle with each other over government, over communities, over the schools and all this kind of stuff. And their focus isn't Christ. Their focus is to make things right because Christ wants them right. Their focus is make things the way I want them to be. And because of that, it, they become very rebellious. And that's where you see a lot of the social unrest, if you will, right? So we're changed when we're in Christ. He has changed us. We're new creations. So if we have new desires and new goals, and part of that is not being rebellious, right? Being peaceable. So because of all that, and we went over this last week, we we're able to look back at the way we once were and realize just how selfish we were before we were saved. And hopefully you guys have been in the faith long enough to have some of those moments in your life where you look back at who you were and you're like, ooh, man, I really wasn't that good. I really did not make good decisions. I really was selfish. People hate being called selfish. I, I'll be the first to admit, I did things to please myself. Right? Um, so I, it begs the question, you know, who did you used to be, which was kind of the title of last week, was who did you used to be? And from that standpoint, from the moment in our lives when we're saved, it's time to look forward. Who will you be? How will you act? How will you love? How will you treat people? And since we were once all of those things that separated us from God and we're now in fellowship with him, we should have a new perspective on how we do those things, how we live our lives. Right, one that leads us to be peaceable and gentle. That moment when you were saved, and I discussed this last week, and I talked to you about like, for me, that moment was visceral. It was very real. It's not like that for everybody. Some people, you know, young guys grow up in the faith. You know, my kids, we weren't saved when the kids were little. Sadie was three. 
but I, they probably don't remember a time when we weren't you know, going to church, doing our best to exercise the faith. So for them, it's growing up in the faith. So for everybody, it's a little bit different. For me, there was a moment where I was like, ooh, man, I'm horrible. I need him. It's not going to be like that for everybody. Um, it's important to see that distinction. But if you look at your life, there's definitely going to be a time where you start to have self-realization about who you can be. Because even if you grew up in the faith, and I think by the time you're probably in your 20s, you can look back and go, yeah, I, w I, I can realize that I need Christ, even though I don't remember a time outside of church, I know that I try to please myself, right? You might not have a moment, but you'll have a series of things across your life where you're like, I'm just not a good person by myself. I need to focus on God. And fortunately, you know, that work, it isn't done in that moment. If you think about this for a second, we'd like to talk about, and it, this is kind of common colloquialisms, right? Like I knew the moment I was saved. But the reality was the moment you were saved really was 2,000 years ago. That's when the work was done for you. It was if you get saved today, if today is the day you get on your knees, you're like, I'm taking in Christ today. I am, he is going to be the Lord over my life. Really, it doesn't happen today. It happened 2,000 years ago. That's when Christ was killed for you. That's when he bore the Father's wrath for you. All the hate that God the Father had poured out on him for the day that you just realize how awful you were, and that you needed him to survive. So we're going to kind of talk about that a little bit today. God's going to remind Titus of the essentials of the gospel message. If you notice, Paul does this. In every letter we've read, at some point, Paul put a few verses in where he goes back from whatever he's pontificating about. And Paul was a pontificator. Make no mistake that today in the church, people would hate Paul's guts. He was the guy who would slide over a stand, get up on it, and be like, I'm an apostle sent by God through Jesus Christ. You're going to listen to what I have to say. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. Sit down and shut up or get out. We're going to talk about Jesus. And then he would give them a bunch of lists of things of what they need to do and how to live their lives and why. And then he keeps going back to this is why. This is who God is. And this is why I'm doing this. He's passionate about it. So he's a pontificator, right? And now it all comes through peace, right? He's a loving guy. He wasn't going to probably shout somebody down and yell at them and be angry at them, although he's a man. You know how men are. But he definitely came with the authority of being an apostle. But he goes back to these bits where he's like, let me remind you why. Let me remind you why we're trying to do all these things. The work that we do, the love we have for each other, why we act, why we live, why we serve in certain ways. This is why. And that's what we're going to go over today. This is the why. So we're going to begin where we left off last week. And we're going to dig into Titus 3, verse 4. <coughs> Excuse me. He writes this. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently 
so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead in good works. These things are good and profitable for men, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and conflicts about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. He closes his letter like this. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. And our people must also learn to lead in good works to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Seems really simple. And I think it is a very simple message. Anybody notice what small thing Paul mentioned twice while he was in there? Anybody just pick up on it just off the top of their head while you were reading or listening? And it was to lead in good works. It was to lead in good works. Pretty interesting that Paul would say that in this, to lead in good works, right? So you expect Paul to say something like lead in faith or lead in love, or, but lead in good works. In the third verse, Paul was explaining who we used to be. He talked about who we used to be, not who you used to be, but the collective we. Verse four is going to tell us why there's a change. And this why is going to show us why we need to lead in good works. We changed because Jesus Christ came to save us from our sinful state. That's the basic premise. We didn't change because you decided I was sinful and I need to be a better person. You changed because Christ came. That's the moment, 2,000 years ago. He is the change agent. He's the one that propagates the, the change in your life. He's the one that made you a new creation. He's the one that changed your heart from stone to flesh. He is the one that makes you realize that you are a sinner. He's the one that makes you realize you need a savior. It is Christ that came that makes us realize there's a change or even a need for good works. You want to hear something cool about verse 4? You go back to that verse and look at it. Verse 4 says, When the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, Paul writes that the kindness and affection of our Savior appeared, of course, is talking about who? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the kindness. He is the affection, right? It is out of Christ or God, the Father's love, that Christ comes. Paul uses this word appeared. That word also means to bring light. So when kindness and affection were brought to light, John 8, 12 tells us this, that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. So kindness and affection are brought to light. It's like Jesus sheds light on everything. Has anybody ever heard this before about light and darkness? You know you can't shed darkness on anything? Darkness does not shed onto anything. Darkness is absence. Jesus is light. He comes in to reveal who he is, to reveal where you can be in eternity, to reveal who you used to be. And not only that, but to reveal who you are in him. 
Very important. Paul reminds us, as he has numerous times, how we get saved, right? We're not saved by any work that we've done. We've gone over this a lot. We went over it deeply in Ephesians. Even if your works are righteous, they don't save you. We're only being saved according to the mercy that God the Father has. It's his mercy that saved us. And we know that it's Jesus that died to atone for our sins. Here Paul is explaining that the individual who saved through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. This is part of the process by which God uses to save us. Right? So it's Jesus Christ who atoned for our sins, but the Holy Spirit's the one who actually regenerates you. He's the one who actually washes you. Now there are some people in some, I, I would call them cultish. There's probably some arguments to be made that will tell you um, that this verse is evidence that in order to be a believer, in order to make it into heaven, that you must be water baptized because there must be some sort of regenerative thing that takes place and that you can't enter the kingdom of heaven without having been dunked in the water. But here, interestingly, the word that Paul uses is lutron, and it describes to be washed, like if you were going to wash your car. But in this case, wash your sins. Not the word baptizo, which is the word to be dunked under your head. So this washing that the Holy Spirit does is different than baptism. So it's not good support for it. But I would also add that this washing is done by the Holy Spirit and not done by you, right? So just to be baptized by the Holy Spirit is a completely different thing. John 1.8 says this. This is John the Baptist speaking in John 1.8, by the way. He says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Christ sends the Holy Spirit to baptize you, to regenerate you, to wash you and make you clean. So we know that water baptism by submersion, it's biblical. Like it, It's a command. Go baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go do that. And we should, as believers, obey that. We should be baptized. We should say, yes, God wants me to be baptized, and go do that. It's a sign we have died with Christ, right? We talked about this. And then when you come up out of the water, it's a sign of being resurrected with Christ. So it is an outward sign of our inward faith. It is a great practice. It's a beautiful sacrament. I think we should all practice and cheer for people in. But we also know that it's Jesus Christ's work that saves us. So just because you dunked yourself or somebody held you underwater, you can't do saving work. So it has to be Christ that saves you. When you're saved, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me go back a little bit. It's Christ's work that saves us on the cross. I'm going to give you a couple of Bible references just in case you want to look at them. Romans 5.8, 2 Corinthians 5.21. So there's the evidence that it is Christ and Christ alone that saves you. And if if we're saved by grace through faith alone, we can utilize some references like John 3.16, which you all know, Acts 16.31, and of course, the famous Ephesians 2.8 and 9. So we know it's Christ that does the work. Now, God um, pours the Holy Spirit out on us, pours them like water, like pouring out a vessel, pours the Holy Spirit onto us richly, he says. 
So in abundance, he's giving all of himself to us. And when you're saved, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, that only happens once. So there's a lot of this weird stuff going on too, where people feel like, can you feel it? I'm being filled. I'm being filled with the Spirit. I'm getting really... No, that's not how it works. God dwells inside of you. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. That's it. You don't get more or less of the Holy Spirit. You can't have part of God, a little more of God, a little less of God. Some people aren't a little more anointed than somebody else. Those are not things. They're not biblical. You get filled once and for all. You can't evict him, by the way, once he's inside of you. That's not a thing. There, there's a lot of debate going on about this. and right, We're actually going to get into Hebrews within the next month. And this is going to be tough for some people about losing your faith, losing the Holy Spirit. But I believe the Holy Spirit is God. And I believe if he dwells inside of you, you do not have the power nor the conviction to kick him out. So I don't think you can do that. You can't evict, you can't evict the king, right? He seals you in the faith. We talked about this when we went over the Trinity. And a couple of proof texts for you, if you want them, are 2 Corinthians 1.22 and 2 Corinthians 5.5 and then Ephesians 1.13 and 14 and then Ephesians 4.30. And by what means is the Holy Spirit poured out on us? I think this is kind of neat the way that Paul words this, but how is the Holy Spirit poured out on us? Through who? Jesus Christ. He's poured out through Jesus Christ. So God is all in agreement with the Trinity. Every part of the Trinity, all persons of the Trinity work in conjunctions, in conjunction with each other to save you. And what we see here is Jesus Christ becomes the center point, which is why we speak about him so much is it's all about Jesus. He's the center point of the salvation story. Even though it's planned by God the Father in the past, it's Jesus who becomes the focal point here. He's the center of the action to be saved, right? So it's God the Father's plan. It is his kindness and affection that sends Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ does that atoning work on the cross. He takes the wrath that only he can take. And then he leaves. He is resurrected. But then it is through him that the Holy Spirit is sent to us and the Holy Spirit who washes us for regeneration. So Christ becomes the center point. So why does this all take place? Why does God have it all set up like this? And I think verse 7 is one that's going to kind of help us out. So if you will, look at verse 7. <clears throat> why does God do it all this way? So that we can be justified. Right? So it says here, So that having been justified by His grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we can be justified. It's a legal term that means to make something right or make it right again. So he does all this work because obviously you are not right. You are unrighteous. You are not in line. So in this legal term to make right again, he justifies you and he brings you back in. Why? So you can become an heir. What does that mean, an heir? It means an heir, like if a father owns something, the son gets it. Well, hold on. How can I be an heir? That doesn't make any sense. It's Jesus Christ who's the heir. So if you're telling me I'm unrighteous, I'm unworthy, the Holy Spirit regenerates me and justifies me and makes me righteous so that I can be an heir? Hold on a second. There can only be one heir, right? There's only one firstborn. 
He's the firstborn among all creation. He's the son who's worthy, the only son who's worthy. So God the Father gives his kingdom to the son, the heir. Well, hold on a second. I'm an heir? I get to be righteous with him? I mean, heir with Jesus Christ? Check this out. Paul wrote this in Romans 8 in verses 16 and 17. It says, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, himself testifies with our spirit. That's pretty cool, right? So that God lives inside of you and he testifies to you. Not in an audible talking to you in a weird sort of way thing, but in a way like convicts you of the truth, leads you, guides you, testifies to you. He testifies with your spirit that we are children of God. And if children, also heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. This is deep. We talked about this a while back. I think when we went over the Trinity. Why did God do it all? To glorify who? Himself. He does it to glorify himself. So God can do anything he wants, but everything that he does always points back to him and it shows his love, his goodness, his sovereignty, his power, his faithfulness, his amazing ability to build something from nothing. It all glorifies him. But if you read this, it says that that we may also be glorified with him. So wait, so we get glory to be a fellow heir with Jesus Christ? The rest of verse 7 says that this is according to the hope of eternal life. So what does eternal life look like then? If we get to be heirs with Christ Jesus, what is the great goal of salvation? We are heirs with Jesus Christ. We reign with Christ. Yeah, to reign, like uh, to rule over things. 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 13. Do you remember when Adam and Eve were put in the garden? What were they doing? They had, what is, does anybody remember that word is when you think over something? They have dominion over everything. They reigned over everything. Now, interestingly, if you look at the Hebrew, naming committees are really important in Hebrew. And we kind of take this on as parents. I, I don't know, like, who named your kids? Your neighbors? Your, your mom, you let your mom name your kids? You, you just you let somebody online, your TikTok videos, name your kids? Like the white boys were named up? No. You named your children because they're yours. And you own them. And you're happy for them. And you love them. And you give them something of yourself. Something that means something to you that will mean something to them. Adam and Eve live perfectly in the garden with dominion over the planet. And what is their job? To name everything. It's a naming committee. They have the power over everything to even let us know what it is. We wouldn't know what anything is without Adam and Eve. You realize that? They named everything. They named everything. So they had power over it. So we get to reign with Christ in that over all of the new creation when that time comes. See, this is part of the good news. It's the good news of the gospel. All will be made new. God will be glorified and we will be glorified with Christ and we'll reign with him forever. Yes, we will worship at the throne 
Yes, we will be in awe of the Father, and yes, we will be in awe of His glory, but still reigning over everything. Because it'll be perfect. It'll be ours to enjoy, to love. It's perfection. It's what it was supposed to be at the beginning before it fell. We're not just saved to sit back and let God save us so that we can allow the work of spreading the gospel to be done without us. You think about the future. We're going to rule and reign with God. We're not going to sit back here and just kind of let the world go on without us. Paul tells us in verse 8 that these truths are being reminded of us so that those who have believed in God will be intent to lead in good works. So here we are with the thing that's named twice in this passage, lead in good works. Why has he given us all this truth of the gospel? So that all who believed in God will be intent to lead in good works. Not just lead in good works, but profitable. It's profitable for us to do good work. It's profitable for us, and it's profitable for those who see us do good work. It's profitable for those who we do the good work for, because people are going to see, I didn't know that believers loved people so much that they're willing to lay down their money, their time, their talents for me. Who am I? Remember, the world sees the church loving itself, and they say, now I know who they are. Remember, the world will know you by the way you love each other. Right? So how can you keep this amazing news to yourself? This is part of the work, sharing the good news. Living as a Christian out loud, if you will. How can you keep it to yourselves? Knowing that when you are resurrected in Christ, you will reign with him in eternity. Why would you not love, act, serve, and work to get this amazing news to every single corner of the planet? Knowing that you get all of that, you're going to keep that from your neighbors. You're going to keep that from your kids. You're not going to tell your mom. You're not going to tell your dad. You're not going to tell that guy at work whose marriage is falling apart and his kids hate his guts, who his life is just an absolute mess and he's pouring a bottle of booze down his throat every night. You're not going to tell him, I know how to get out. I know there's a way, not only for you to fix what you have to give you hope here but for hope and eternity that you get to rule and reign with christ you think it'll fix that that god that can do that for you can do that for that person as well every act that we have how can you not let this good news permeate every single fiber of who you are as a person in every single thing that you do as a husband as a wife as a father as a mother, as a brother, sister, co-worker, friend, neighbor, whatever it is in your life that you are to somebody else, how can you not let it permeate you and pour out of you onto people that you know, meet, see, communicate with, or otherwise? Every word that comes out of you, every act in your home with your spouse or with your kids, every interaction you have with your neighbors and the people you work with, do all of these people that are in your circle right now know that you're a believer? If I was to line up everybody that you knew and like stood you there and had them line up one at a time, we'll start with the people you know well, like was your mom or your dad or your brother or sister, and sit them and be like, hey, is uh, Vanessa a believer? Yeah, yeah Vanessa's a believer. Like, Next person, step up. Is Vanessa a believer? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know she's a believer. How far down the line do we have to go where somebody's like, 
I don't, I don't know. Well, how long have you known her? I've known her for this long. Well, how, does, how do you not know? So I'm not trying to pick on you. You're just the example. I'm sure everybody knows you're a believer. But do you see what I'm getting at? Like you're going to get to a point in that line where somebody's going to be like, nah, I remember them. They're definitely not a believer. I know how they live their life. Definitely can't be on Team Jesus. There's somebody in that line. There's a long line of people in my life who are like, there's no way. There's no way. Why would God save that guy? Right? Think about that for a minute. Do all the people in your circle know you're a believer? Are you intent to lead in good works? And good works is a general phrase. Everything you do. In verses 9 through 11, here in our text, Paul takes the opportunity to remind us to stay away from false teachings. Now, we've kind of heard Paul talk about this a lot. All the conflict that's being caused by false teachings is what Paul would call unprofitable and worthless. Okay? What Paul says here in verse 10 is to reject a factious man after a first and a second warning. And the word factious comes from our Greek world, hieretikos. Does anybody know what word we get from that? Heretic. So hieratikos, it means heretic. Interesting word. We've already heard Paul's stance on this. He wants false teacher. He wants them called out. Like That's a false teacher. They're a false teacher. That's a false teacher. Hoping that people will return to Christ. We never want people, like we want to return people to the fold. But in this case, warn them first, warn them a second time, and then avoid them. Like, man... I had this conversation with a lady, friend of ours, we used to go to church with regularly. She got Joel Olstein's book. She brought it into church. And I, I'm like, what did you bring that book in here for? She's like, I love listening to Joel Olstein. I'm like, why? He's not even a believer. Oh, but it's such good stuff. Like, it's uplifting. I'm like, but it's a lie. So why would you listen to it? But it makes me feel good to listen. I don't care. That's not the point. The point is he's lying to you. He's a liar. So when it comes to this, set it aside. Stay away from it, right? Especially if you're not in a position to contend with them personally or have uh, a relationship with them where you can approach them gently. Just set it aside. Stay away from them. I'm begging you. I'm begging you to reject them. It's not profitable for you. So listen, Paul's going to close this letter. And he gives some instructions for kind of the future structure of the church here at Crete. <clears throat> he talks about a few people. We'll go over them real quick just to give you some, this is like the historical information, the good stuff, the stuff that I kind of eat up when I do my studies, the nerdy stuff. So Artemis and Tychicus, he mentions these two guys. Artemis, according to church history, Artemis was the bishop of Lystra. And we actually don't find that out until a couple hundred years later. But it's the only place we hear of Artemis is here. Now, Tychicus, we've talked about before, right? He's traveled with Paul uh, before in the past. Paul refers to him as a dear brother, so he's a great friend of his. And he actually delivered the epistles to Ephesus and to Colossae from Paul who was in prison. So that's where we've heard of Tychicus before. So both of these men, Paul is sending to uh, Titus here at Crete. Right? He says, when I send Artemis and Tychicus, do you be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. So both of these men, Paul has decided, are worthy of leading the church there. 
So I'm sending these guys to relieve you. So Paul now calls Titus to go to Nicopolis. Interestingly, the western capital of Greece. Uh, of course, Rome owns everything now, but when Greece was the, um, you know, the superpower of the world up until a couple hundred years before Christ, Greece was the epicenter of the world, and that city happened to be built by Augustus Caesar. So this is a big city, uh, a shipping city, the center, but also Paul's there. And if we know anything about Paul, we don't have a, a letter to Nicopolis, but if we know anything about Paul and Nicopolis, it is probably a full-on fight. I mean, this is like he is taking it to the streets, right? It is the whole sports section of the Sunday paper. This is, he is getting into it. Now, we just don't have a letter to them, but something tells me, you know, he's calling Titus to come join him there. He's, he's bringing people onto the team to, to give him some help. Now, check this out. He's got to leave Crete and he's got to go 300 kilometers north by boat. Now, we got a kind of an idea what the boats looked like back then. But he's going to travel across the um, Mertoian Sea in a, like a probably a 25 or 30 foot wooden boat with a sail on it, 300 kilometers. Ooh, man, I don't know. I like being on the water probably more than some, but that sounds absolutely awful. And then after being out there probably for weeks, they land and he's got to walk over 530 kilometers on foot to get over to where Paul is. So this wasn't like... Hey, man, it's Sunday. You should cruise over and have quiche with me. This was like, whew, man, this is going to be a big one. You know, pack your wooby in your canteen cup. This is going to be a long, a long haul. The next two people that he mentions, he's, he, he talks about Zenos, uh, a lawyer, and Apollos. Okay, he says, um, diligently help send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so nothing is lacking for them. Zenos is a lawyer. Apollos was a was mighty in the scriptures we learned from Acts 18. And they must have been in Crete helping Titus because he's telling Titus to send them out. He's sending them out to do more work for the gospel. These men are mentioned of their work in Crete is beyond proof that there is a growing church. He is guiding, raising, and loving other men that he is sending out to do good work in the church. So Paul is an apostle, raising up these men, building them up in the faith, and then they are building each other up in the faith, mentoring each other, and sending them out. So all good work in the church, right? These men are really understood that their life's work is spreading the gospel. Their life's work, everything they do is spreading the gospel. That could be us, you know. That could be your life's work, not being in the military or being a PA or, or whatever that thing is that you do, you can put a tag on it. That's not your life's work. Your life's work is getting people to know Jesus. That other stuff just brings money in. I know it sounds like, but I put all that time and all that effort into that. That's my thing. And I, I know you love it and that's good. It's, it's good that you're passionate about whatever it is that you do, but this is the reality. It's over at some point. Either you retire from it or you die, and then it's over. You get to go be with Jesus. And guess what? We don't need any of the regular professions in heaven. So the reality is one is more important than the other. Like, and it's very hard for us because we are programmed, aren't we? We are like programmed to do the thing. Get up, go to work. Get up, 
go to work, get up, go to work. And then it's like, oh, but then we need some time for the kids and some time for sports and some time for church and some downtime. So you like piecing things in around your job. These guys got it. What is their job? Spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the other stuff will just work out. What did Paul do that whole time? Spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then when he needed money, what did he do? He built what? Tents. He built tents so that no one would need anything from me. Or it might be sales that he built. But either way, he did work so that he'd have money so he could eat. So we're reminded in the last line of this letter to Titus, and our people must also learn to lead in good works, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. So here is this term again, lead in good works. Paul finishes his letter with a greeting and an encouragement for love, faith, and grace, common for what Paul does. We read this in most of his letters. It's opening and closing. But there are two times, as I brought up earlier in this, in this small section that Paul brings this up, to lead in good works. The first is that Titus do this. Speak confidently, he says. Speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead in good works. And in the second time he says it, he says people must learn to lead in good works. So what can we take away from this message that Paul has given us that he's found so important that he needs to repeat leading good works to people twice in just such a small section? I think we can learn this. We need to speak confidently, believers. We need to speak confidently of the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In all that you do, speak confidently of him and the work that he's done in your life. In all that you do, in every place you are, speak confidently of what he's done in your life, in your heart. Of the work he's done in your family, don't keep it a secret. Speak confidently about it. And secondly, learn. We must continue to learn to lead in good works. This means sound teaching. This means reading your Bible. This means constant fellowship with fellow believers not just once in a while but you need to be around believers all the time and learn from one another in love in fellowship in correction like not afraid to tell somebody who's a fellow believer what you're doing there is not right Ooh, what you said there that's not right or how about this hey what you're doing there i think is really good hey i love you why did you say that? Not just because I love you, man. I love your family. It's all of that. This is how we learn to lead in good works, by loving one another in those ways, in all of those ways. I want you to listen to this. Charles Spurgeon preached this on Titus 3 in the year 1888. He wrote this. While speaking to believers specifically, he calls them out in his sermon. This is for believers he said, I stir you up because I'm not afraid to do so. But I'm sure that it will do you good. You will take home this exhortation and you will say, each one to himself, you say this to yourself and you get home, what can I do more for Jesus? How can I walk more worthy of my profession? How can I be careful to maintain good works? So May God bless you. So today, I'll say this. I'm not afraid to stir you. 
I'm not afraid to stir you in good works. What can you take home with you from this study today that would make you ask yourself, what can you do more for Jesus today, tomorrow? What can you do more for Jesus? He did all that work for you, for nothing. For nothing. You didn't do, you didn't do anything. You were a rotten creature from the dirt sinful, separated, willingly turned your back on God and he came and died for you, what can you do for him? How can you walk more worthy of your profession? So your profession of faith, that is. How can you walk more worthy of that? What can you do to save, get that saving grace, good news to somebody else? And how can you be careful to maintain good works in your life? And if you're not a believer, I believe everybody here is a believer, but if you're not a believer here today, I would pray that you'd seek Christ. The truth of the salvation found only in him is the best news ever told in the history of ever, and he will rescue you from yourself and give you eternal life. But for all of you who are saved, who are sitting here today, I encourage you to lead in good works, to love deeper than you ever have. I mean, really, like love people hard to serve harder than you ever have, to share the gospel unashamedly with all who will listen and stay on the grind. Stay on the grind in your life. I'm going to close with this. I heard this the other day and I don't know who it was because it was kind of in the periphery of my life. When you love people, you pray for them. Think about this for a second. How hard would it be to be mad at somebody if you had just prayed for them. You want to change the way things are inside your house? Ooh. How hard would it be to be mad at somebody right after you just got done praying for them? I mean, you take yourself in front of God and beg for that person and then open your eyes back up and try to be mad at them. What an amazing perspective on our lives to even just reach people in prayer when we're too weak to reach them with our words. So be encouraged to lead in good works this week. Father God, we are thankful for you and all that you do in our lives. We are thankful for your son, Jesus, who gave his life for us, that we may be able to return in love to you, Father. We look forward to the day we are with you in eternity, reigning as fellow heirs with your son, Jesus. But Father God, while we are still here, help us to have the strength to lead in good works, in all that we do. It is in his precious name that we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen.